This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me this week in the studio is Jane McGonagall, the inventor of Super Better, a mobile game that helps people recover faster from depression, anxiety, and traumatic brain injury. Super Better is also the name of her book. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Thank you also. I should tell our listeners that Jane has given me a gift today. And so, frankly, you should all know that all of my advice today is going to be clouded by the (laughs) fact that I've received a gift. Um, It is a spoon. It is a spoon engraved with my peanut butter spoon because Mm -hmm. um, she has apparently listened to enough episodes (laughs) to know about my semi-regular habit of making a meal out of peanut butter in the car. And now I have a fancy engraved spoon to do something decidedly not fancy with. Ah, well, and yes, this could be our first piece of advice to listeners, which is I discovered in the last year that you can get spoons engraved with anything, and it makes very good gifts for people. We live in a (laughs) golden age of engraving. I think that is almost certainly true, Um, and it has helped me realize that the only thing now that's keeping me from, like, total domestic perfection is getting more bowls. I only own two. I own a million plates, um, roughly 700,000 coffee cups. Um, and two bowls, which is not enough, especially because I only like one of them. That would be an easy New Year's resolution. I, I shouldn't even wait for January. I should go buy <laughs> bowls today. I have the money. I have the wherewithal. I have the cupboard space. No, I think save it for 2019 so that you can start the year successfully. <laughs> okay. So just really like live with the bowl resentment yeah. for the next couple of months because I really hate one of my bowls. Oh, It sucks. Ooh. It's bad. The Ooh. other one's so good. And then I use it and it gets dirty, and then I get mad at the other one for being available. Okay, I see that. It's a, that's a, a problem. There's probably a lot going on there. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm bringing a lot of emotional energy to my bowl situation. Um, but thank you so much for um, being willing to come on the show and tackle a bunch of kind of intense questions this week. Mm-hmm. Very intense. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. going to bring... We're going to... We're going to bring our best wisdom. Yeah, we're going to do our best. I don't mm-hmm. know that there's anyone here that I feel comfortable saying we are going to fix their problem. No. Well, one. one. One, I'm fixing a problem today. That's right. 100% guaranteed okay. life-altering cure for what plagues this writer. Okay. Well, I, and that's actually our first letter. And so um, I'm glad that we're going to start high and then fail after that. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Please read that letter. Sure. The subject is work talk. Dear Prudence, my wife and I both have professional jobs, though hers is quite a bit more challenging and time-consuming than mine. When I leave for work, I rarely think about it at all. Oh, no, when I leave work, I rarely think about it at all and would be more than happy most days not to discuss anything at all about my workday with my wife as it is boring, certainly to me, and I would think to her as well. My wife likes to relate the details of her workday at length. She finds it offensive if I do not actively inquire into her work each day. Though I don't mind hearing an interesting work-related story, the truth is that I would prefer not to be subjected to the majority of work-related discussion she shares with me, which often ends up being the bulk of what we talk about over dinner. 
I often end up zoning out. Though we have discussed this matter in the past, we don't seem to agree. Her view is that this is an important part of her life, and she wants to share it with me. Mine is that extended work-related discussion involving people I don't know and details I don't understand is wearying, and in some settings, it is rude. She also likes to discuss her work in social gatherings. I know, of course, that work is an important part of life, and her identity is considerably more wrapped up in her work than mine is. I don't want her to think that I don't want to hear about her life, but the idea of hearing detailed recitations of what happened in her office each day for years to come sounds like a heavy lift. Is there some option other than resigning myself to this? Apparently, the the answer to that question is yes, and you know it, so <laughs> do oh, it. Okay, so I happen to know the number one way to predict whether a marriage will end in divorce or not. Wow. Uh, it's something I research as part of trying to come up with new habits to teach people to be happier and healthier. And mm-hmm. it turns out research at University of Pennsylvania and then replicated at Yale and Harvard and basically everywhere they study healthy relationships has found that the number one predictor of whether you will stay married or get a divorce is whether you are an active, constructive responder when your spouse tries to tell you about their day. Would you like to know what that means? <laughs> yes, yes, very much, please. So active, constructive responding means when somebody wants to talk about something that has happened to them, you actively ask them questions about it to draw out more details, exactly the kind of details that this letter writer finds so wearying. If somebody has a problem, you say, well, how do you feel about that? Or just even just simple phrases like, tell me more about that, or I want to know more about that. But this letter writer doesn't want to know more. Well... I'm just saying the power is now in this letter writer's hands because the number one predictor of people being unhappy in marriages and ending them is spouses who regularly refuse to engage in this type of conversation. So really, I think the letter writer might want to just think of it like a skill. He could become a super duper awesome, good at being a husband, husband. And spend half of dinner doing the thing that is the number one predictor of a successful marriage if that is a goal for him. Yeah, I, I do think where where I see I, there's the parts of that that I do agree with, which is that the strategy that you have right now, letter writer, which is do it as much as your wife wants to, but do a bad job. Mm-hmm. That's a bad, you know, that's, <laughs> yes. that's not working for either one of you. Because yes. I imagine she can tell when you are zoning out and mm-hmm. she resents it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't enjoy zoning out as your, you know, life partner uh, mm-hmm. talks about something that you don't care about. So this strategy is bad. Yes. It's not working. Nobody's happy. It's all all bad all around. Yes. So the the I think two things within your power. One is you can set limits to how much you two talk mm-hmm. about work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then make a conscious decision when you talk about work um, to not do a half-assed job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you're super engaged, she'll get it all out of her system a lot faster. You don't. You look skeptical. Well, I see some people just will take an inch and go a mile. Because I, I think the first thing that needs to happen is the conversation about how much they talk about work. Like, just because I think if if his approach were just to suddenly listen really actively, she would not think, oh, now I should scale back. She would think, this is great. Now we're finally on the same page. Mm. So I think the first thing that needs to happen um, is the conversation about how much it goes on. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really fair to say if, you know, every day you want all of dinner to be talking about work 
and you want to talk about it at parties and you mm-hmm. want to talk about it sometimes beyond dinner um, uh, to just say, I, I, I got to have limits on this one. I think that's going to be really helpful. But then to also say, um, when we talk about it, I also want to be engaged. I do want to pay attention. I, 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 I can see that it means a lot to you. And even if it doesn't mean a lot to me, part of the job of being married is saying, sometimes we will do things that I don't care about very much. Yeah. And I can either do it resentfully and with a spirit of annoyance, or I can say, this is part of why I've chosen to spend my life with another human being and not just mm-hmm. like live alone <laughs> in my like expansive apartment, like <laughs> making myself steaks and listening to <laughs> records that I like. Yeah. So, well, you know, and I think you could certainly have like Friday free from work dinners and, you know, special times when you just chill and relax. But I can't help but think, you know, I heard an interview with Jay Leno a number of years ago after his dad had died. All right. And he said the thing that was hardest for him about it was that he felt like his whole life was having these experiences that were like chips you would win in a casino, but he cashed them in with his dad. It was telling his dad about what he'd experienced that made it feel like all of these experiences collected actually meant something. And that was what he felt the most grief over, was not having someone to cash his chips in with. And I think this letter writer's wife, you know, she's going out to work, maybe has a stressful job, maybe does work that's really meaningful to her. Um, She's trying to cash in some chips. And I, you know, it sounds like you have a very good practical approach to this. And I also just have kind of a soft spot for somebody who it, it's, it sounds like in particular it matters to her that her husband hears and sees a side of her. And, you know, the party stuff aside, I think, um, I think it maybe it's sweet and that she wants to cash this in. And I would encourage him to think of himself as like this. It's an amazing gift that you, it is an amazing gift you give to someone when you care about what happened to them each day. Yeah. And I think one thing that's going to be helpful is uh, to remember that uh, the way that your wife is approaching is is not the same way that you are. Right. Like you don't really care about your job when you're not working. Mm-hmm. So that's why you don't talk about work. That makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Um, and it's you already know that it's different for your wife. But just remind yourself, like when your wife is telling you about her job, it's because she likes her job Mm -hmm. and it's an important part of who she is. So Mm -hmm. she's not telling you about something that she doesn't really care about. She's telling you about something that she cares about. Um, And work is not the same thing to everyone. So just because you don't care very much about your job and, you know, maybe that works great for you. And maybe part of the underlying discomfort here is that you would perhaps like a job that you cared about more than you do. And if that's the case, look into that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, basically, when your wife is telling you about work, it's not because she enjoys boring you. It's because this really matters to her. Um, So certainly, I think, you know, if you guys have been talking about it for half an hour at dinner to say, babe, I love you. I'm reaching the end of how much I want to talk about work. Can we (laughs) call it a day on this? That's really fair. Um, and your, I think your wife should uh, listen to that. I think you should be, feel comfortable um, advocating for that, talking about something else. Um, How great that they're having dinner together and having conversations this frequently. Yeah. I mean, that is also not a trivial thing. I mean, it sounds like they're doing pretty good in yeah. that sense. Yeah. And I think, you know, do it in the moment. Like, you know, you don't. it doesn't always have to be a big picture conversation where like we're going to agree right now how many hours a week we right. spend discussing your job. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but, to, you know, yeah, do ask those questions. Do listen to those stories and then say, I'd love to talk about movies or I'd love to talk about our family or I'd love to talk about what we want to do this weekend or 
something else. Yeah, have a burning question or a burning issue and then then just burn with the equal intensity and you may be able to redirect a conversation. Yeah, um, and f- give yourself permission, like when you have done some of that to say like, um, I, I, re- I really want to talk about something else now. Like that is also okay. So um, if you listen well during those moments, like get in that good 20 minutes or half an hour every now and again. Um, and then when it when you're ready to talk about something else, you know, have that back and forth. And I don't think this is going to be something that's going to go away in the next week or two. Um, and certainly if if she is like visibly boring other people at parties by being like, and then Renata in HR said the following and people are just like, boy, this is dull. You know, that's another topic of conversation. But I, I think the really important thing is the two of you and, and yeah. figuring out how much of this has to do with your own feelings about your work. How much of this has to do with uh, a feeling of like, does your wife listen to you in turn? Are there things you want to talk about um, as much as she wants to talk about yes. this? Um, does it feel like she hears you when you say like, I, I'm, I'm just tapped out of hearing about today at work? Hmm. So I, I this is interesting. I feel like you're really on the side of proactively trying to limit the conversation. And I will just I feel like you could run an experiment where for one week. Just be as active constructor or responder as you can and see if you like it better. Is Maybe it actually is more interesting for you to hear about this stuff mm-hmm. if you are actively engaged with the conversation. And maybe she's so happy you actually decide you don't mind being bored for half an hour yeah. a night. Yeah. And, you know, the difference between hearing like a detailed recitation of like, and then like we printed something out on this color paper, like yeah. that's one thing. Um, but if she's trying to tell you about like uh, something that she achieved that she's really proud of yeah. Oh, yeah. or a way that she solved a problem with yeah. somebody that had been like a thorn in her side all week. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so my husband comes home all the time and tells me like, I thought of a really clever thing today. And it's not that the thing matters. It's not like I'm so interested in the thing. Mm-hmm. But I like I want to reflect back to my husband that, oh, I see you are a clever person. Yeah. I s- totally see that. I, I love hearing about my partner's work. Like their work is fascinating. And um, it's it's it, sometimes they talk about people that I don't know or <laughs> there's stories or, or backstories or histories there that I'm not familiar with. I'm not always like immediately caught up to speed. And certainly if 100 percent of our conversations were about that, I would not be so happy but (laughs) i often really enjoy hearing stories that i'm not super familiar with because that's again to me that's an upside of being in a relationship is getting to hear about somebody else's world yeah Um, but if you don't feel like your wife is is equally invested in listening to you then that's that's the key that's the key Mm -hmm. make sure it's not a one-way yeah because it'll be hard too if you're like let's stop talking about work and she's like all right what do you want to talk about you're like nothing want to watch tv <laughs> yeah um, um so what saying, have a burning issue that you want to talk about that may do the job of redirecting yeah yeah but you know uh, good luck i think this will be a number of conversations rather than just one um i think that there are things that you can reasonably ask for limits you can absolutely set and then also when you are hearing about her day ways that you can um act like a really good listener that may change the orientation of your heart towards that conversation. Like, it doesn't always work to act one way and hope that your feelings catch up. Right. But I do think when it comes to listening, um, as long as you know this is not going to be something you have to do exhaustively every single day, um, to ask those questions and to really listen Mm -hmm. um, makes listening more fun. Yes. It's an experiment. The letter writers should write back and say how it goes. Yeah. I, I hope that they do. So... 
continuing the theme of uh, the complications of intimacy, Mm -hmm. uh, the subject letter or the subject line of this next letter is intimacy is complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dear Prudence, I've been with my partner, Charlie, for two years. They have been two exquisitely, blissfully happy years. He's been my most successful and healthy relationship after a string of abusive ones. Charlie is kind and caring almost to a fault. He puts me before everything else. He's funny, intelligent, thoughtful, and endlessly giving. We share the same opinions, have the same interests. We do everything together. We are similar in all but one way, our libidos. Charlie would be happiest if we were having sex a few times a week. I have almost no libido. I would be fine with just a few times a year. I rarely feel the urge even on my own. I'm into sex once we get started, but starting sex is really hard. I'm a busy grad student, so when Charlie tries to initiate, I usually feel like I should be studying or sleeping instead. Sometimes I feel objectified and turned off by the mere request, even though I know that's not reasonable. This is complicated by my having vaginismus, a cardiac condition, and a rare allergy. Insertion is painful. I bleed every time, no matter what I do. Getting too active makes my chest hurt, and I am quite literally allergic to semen. We have sex maybe every few months. I feel like I'm neglecting Charlie physically and emotionally. We kiss and cuddle daily. I've asked if he wants to seek sexual fulfillment elsewhere, and he says no, and I don't really want him to. He's been patient and understanding, but he said that he wishes we had sex more frequently. What do I do? Am I asexual? I do value the emotional connection sex gives me with Charlie. I love him so much, and I'm excited to spend the rest of our lives together, but I don't want him to be disappointed in the sex life portion for the rest of our lives. So there's a lot here. There's so much. I think the two things that I wanted to point out before we get into the sort of possible strategies that this person can have. um, One is the question of, am I asexual? Um, And that is a question that only you can uh, only you can answer, letter writer. Um, I feel like part of the reason you ask that question is, do I have a good enough reason for not wanting to have sex very often? And the implication is sort of, the reasons that I have just lift, listed don't feel legitimate or like I feel like they make me a burden or they make me difficult. So all I'll say to that is whether or not that is a label that you ever find useful, the things that you have talked about are real. They are serious. Um, they sound distressing. They sound physically painful. They are very, very good reasons to not have sex. Yes. And just because Charlie is a good person who does not abuse you and who loves you um, and who enjoys sex more often um, does not mean that you are doing anything wrong or being withholding or cold or hurting him. Um, you live in the body that you live in. You have some, you know, serious physical conditions that you are dealing with. Um, and they are legitimate and they matter. And and you have every right. Um, and, and I think probably Charlie would tell you the same thing um, to not just like, you know, walk it off or like power through it or like you don't have good enough reasons for turning down sex with a great guy. You do. So that is just if that label is useful to you, that's amazing. Um, If it doesn't feel true to you and part of the reason you're asking that question is because you feel like if I had that identity, then I would have a good reason. But unless I do, I don't. You have good enough reasons. Um, And then the other thing is you know, you say he's kind and caring almost to a fault. He's endlessly giving. A lot of that's really great. Um, and it also sounds like one of the ways in which that could maybe become a little dysfunctional is this um, uh, idea that you seem to have and maybe Charlie shares, which is that Charlie is the good partner mm. who gives everything 
and you are the person with conditions and requirements. And because Charlie doesn't have any of those, or at least it doesn't seem to be something Mm -hmm. that you two discuss, um, Charlie's like built up a lot of credit Mm -hmm. and you're running up a lot of debits. And I just think that that can be a really dangerous mindset to get into of I owe Charlie something. I'm too difficult for Charlie. Yep. Um, Charlie knows you. Charlie knows what you're working with. Charlie knows what's difficult for you. Um, Obviously, uh, something like mismatched libidos is really, really hard to deal with. I'm not saying that you're going to be able to solve this tomorrow, but I I, I just want to encourage both of you not to think of this relationship as one where Charlie is a saint who has rescued you. Yes. Charlie is your partner. Um, And that means that whatever you're dealing with around intimacy, sex, time management, sleepiness, health conditions um you know that's you that's that's and and, and it, it, that's if, if if this were charlie i think you would feel a lot of love and compassion and you would want to be there for him even if sometimes you were like i really wish i could have sex um and that does not mean that um you're hurting him um it it just means you guys are dealing with some difficult um uh complications does that, does that make sense? Oh, oh my God. Every word of that made perfect sense. And I think, you know, that's such an important thing to remember that this is not a problem that's going to be solved by guilt or recrimination or, you know, self-hate, essentially, saying there's something, you know, wrong with me that um, I need to feel bad about. Feeling bad is not going to improve anything, really. Um, you know, it... it I was a grad student once, and, you know, when I was in grad school, I prioritized solving the problem of how do I graduate and actually earn my degree over solving other problems. And it even just occurs to me that, you know, this this is a this is something she's going to be um, trying to to find the best ways to live her life, probably her whole life with Charlie or with another partner that these it sounds like these are these are issues or or challenges that she will have a long time hopefully to experiment and explore different treatments different approaches different activities that it doesn't have to be solved you know now or today mm-hmm. um and it's okay to I mean I would even say it's okay to just kind of be present and show up for the goals that are most urgent for her. And if fixing, you know, and fixing, you know, feeling better about their sex life is not the most urgent challenge in front of her, I would also say that's okay, mm-hmm. too. And there's no reason to feel guilty about, you know, well, uh, I feel like I should be studying or sleeping because my self-care really matters to me to get out of this program and set myself up for success for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's okay, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's, you know, I don't, it, it sounds like she is in an especially challenging situation. You would normally, you would, someone would say, well, you know, if you can't do penis and vagina, then do sure. oral. And, and then, but I can't because this email gives me an asthma attack. I need my inhaler. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kind of, the sort of, um, like, patience and creativity that is going to go into her feeling good about what she chooses to engage with is, uh, it's just, it's not, uh, it's, I, I just want to say she doesn't have to like rush through and decide. Right. And I don't want to say the goal for you needs to be making sure 
that Charlie gets enough sex. Obviously, in a relationship, you care about how your partner feels, um, and that includes sex. So, of course, you should be, you know, talking to one another, asking questions, trying different things. But that does not mean that it is your job to get Charlie up to a certain number. Um, And otherwise, you're doing a bad job. So, like, just that line, you know, sometimes I feel objectified simply by the request, even though I know that's not reasonable. that, That worries me. Like, it doesn't sound like that's coming from Charlie. It sounds like that's coming from the letter writer of, like, because I don't have sex with Charlie as often as Charlie would like to, if I want to say no, I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. because it's not reasonable. And I, I, again, I just think that's a real dangerous path to go down. Again, it doesn't sound like Charlie is objectifying you, but if Charlie suggests sex and you're like, man, I don't want to, I feel turned off by the very request, to respond to that in yourself by saying, I'm being unreasonable, I should just grit my teeth and go along with it. That is a recipe for alienation, mm-hmm. resentment, mm-hmm. and wanting to say no more and more again in the future. And again, just just ask yourself, like, would I want Charlie to have sex with me if he were feeling objectified, exhausted, turned off, anxious, and didn't really want to. Mm-hmm. I think you know, letter writer, that you would not want to have sex with him on those terms. Mm-hmm. And so be as kind to yourself um, uh, as you would be to him in that situation. Yes. And he can advocate for himself. You know, he he can express the degree to which he's cool with this and patient with this or forever cool with it. I mean, it's I I don't think you have to be both your advocate and his advocate Mm -hmm. at the same time all the time. Um, He'll I you know, he he will he will also make decisions about, you know, if he if he thinks you need to solve this problem in a different way than you're currently approaching it, you know, beyond what what is working you can ask him to just be his own advocate the same way that you are for yourself. Remind him you're doing such a good job of letting me know. And uh, I want you to be open and honest about uh, what you're thinking. So we can continue to evaluate this because there are ways to um, address low libido if you want to increase it. And Mm -hmm. if you don't, then you then there are ways to talk about how are we going to, you know, I think at this point, Charlie knows that um, sex every couple of months is probably going to be uh, the the way going forward in a relationship. He said that he wants to stay with you. Yeah. Um, he does not want to sleep with other people. Mm. You know those things about him. Um, and so I think your only job here needs to be to just periodically check in. You, you guys kiss and cuddle regularly. Um, you do have physical intimacy. Um, you don't need to like ask every day, like, are you okay? Um, But to just, like, check in and, you know, uh, there may be ways in which he's like, yes, I would enjoy sex more, but um, I only want to have sex with you when you're feeling super jazzed about it. Um, And I really enjoy the intimacy we have. I really enjoy monogamy. I, I, you know, I'm not going to die of not getting it wetness. Um, That will not kill me. And it does not feel so pressingly important to me that I would want to end our relationship. And if that's what's going on, um, then I think, you know, you can have conversations about, like, are there ways in which, um, you know, uh, are you comfortable, like, being around him when he's getting off that does not necessarily Mm -hmm. involve you doing anything? Like, would that feel deeply uncomfortable to you? Would that feel like, oh, great, I can kind of read my book and, like, affectionately, like, have an arm around him um, while he, like, gets off and, like, that's 
fabulous and fun and I don't have to like, you know, worry about getting my semen allergy activated. Um, I'm not physically going through anything. My heart rate's not up, but mm-hmm. I'm like a loving presence yes. nearby yes. and I'm incorporate like, um, you know, just like having yep. like being present, but not necessarily facilitating it. Like that's a form of intimacy that might feel great. It also might not like you might be like, nope, I'd hate that. In which case gift of clarity, like it might mm-hmm. be difficult, but at least you would know. So I think that's just something you guys are going to have to keep talking about. And the thing that's most important for you is not to convince yourself that you need to do things you hate or that hurt in order to keep him happy and a trust that he will be honest with you about what he wants. And that if you guys have a harder conversation down the road where he's like, I actually do want to sleep with people a lot more, that you guys will have to have that conversation honestly between the two of you. Yes. Um, But yeah, basically, my biggest answer would be don't do things that hurt you Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. you feel guilty and don't convince yourself that Charlie deserves um, something that you don't or can't offer him just because he's a good person. It's hard. It is hard, but I'm I'm optimistic. She's aware of what's going on. He's there for her. Yep. Yeah. And all the, frankly, the only problem so far, I, I think, is a lot of um, guilt on the letter yes. writer's part. It's not like Charlie's like, I'm miserable. Yes. This sucks. Charlie has just said, yeah, I do wish that we had sex more. Yeah. But it also sounds like you guys are really happy. Yeah. And maybe it's like maybe that's a problem she wants to solve down the line. Maybe she will also wish that they had sex more down the line and then they can work creatively and and expand the definition of sex and and all of yeah. the things that you suggested. Um, that may that time may come too, and and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, basically, I really liked your uh, encouragement that you know she doesn't have to take on a label of asexuality, which might feel like it would be something that would be true for her for. A long time for mm-hmm. after grad school for her whole life. Um, Phases but, are great. If yeah. something lasts a lifetime, that's wonderful. If something works for you for a little while and then later that changes, that's fabulous too. It does not invalidate yeah. anything you've experienced. Um, frankly, I think all you need to own right now is just that you know you have almost no libido. Um, you would like to have sex a couple of times a year. Um, you want to be able to say no to sex even if it's rare. Um, and you want to have room to talk about that. And Charlie knows that about you. And so that's it. And and that might not work for other people, but that's what's going on with the two of you. So don't worry about what another couple might do or whether or not this is enough sex for you two to be a happy couple. Um, It's only about how you two are doing. Yeah. Do not hold yourself to any standard. Yeah. No. That's just going to. You know, it's hard because it's so different for every couple, but I will often hear from people who feel this sense of if I'm in a romantic relationship with somebody, I owe them a certain, like, I don't know what the number is, but it's a certain number of times a week or a month Mm -hmm. that I have to do it, Mm -hmm. even if I don't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just a terrible way to treat yourself. Yes. Um, Yes. Yeah. Um, And I I just do not believe that that's what Charlie wants from you is for you to, like, grit your teeth and suffer silently. So I, I I have a lot of hope for you two. I don't know exactly what the future is going to look like, but it's going to involve a lot of talking um, and a lot of being kind to yourself. So leaving behind uh, romantic intimacy and heading straight for uh, oh, yeah. the sort of fun intimacy you get from people who yell at you at work. Uh, would you read this next letter? Mm-hmm. And by the way, I've had many office jobs, so I've 
I can relate to this letter. Have you ever been yelled at at work? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes. I've cried in the bathroom. I've done it all. Okay. Subject, workplace nightmare. Dear Prudence, I love my job in large part because of the people, especially my direct boss, the CEO. I work with one person, let's call her Becky, who is part of the executive team, and while pleasant to the rest of the executives, is known to demean and rake over the coals anyone she deems inferior. She condescends and insults, and those of us on the receiving end have consoled each other at work and after hours. This morning, she came in my office with lots of new information and asked me to email someone to have them ask someone else for an answer that she needs next week. I suggested she email them directly. She went off. She raised her voice. She proceeded to call me very unpleasant and extremely unhelpful. Those are direct quotes. Uh, I am an assistant, after all, although not to her. She interrupted my speech and then proceeded to have a long, loud conversation with another colleague while she stood in my office until I got a call from the boss. It's not harassment, and it may not technically qualify as a hostile work environment, but I believe that when she escalates someone's simple mistake into an attempt to embarrass and demean them in an ongoing CCL debacle, it sure feels hostile and unprofessional. So do I bring this up with HR, with my boss, let it go? She's not retiring anytime soon, but she's very difficult to deal with. So So you've been yelled at a lot. What do you got? um, I have tried many approaches in my professional life for dealing with people who stress me out. And I have come to the opinion that it is... Better not to make other people's unprofessional behavior your problem to solve. Um, It sounds like Becky has some power or authority over the letter writer, which kind of limits your ability to um, require other people to be professional. But it certainly sounds like Becky is not a good professional and is not good at handling her emotions. If this were a peer, that would be the what I would suggest is, is if somebody started talking this way to me or a colleague, I would say, it sounds like you're having a hard time handling your emotions right now. Um, and, uh, and that would be, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk away until you can handle this better. When it's somebody above you, you can't fix them. It's, that's the hierarchical nature of work. And um, I would basically accept that this is not a professional person and and work hard on ways to not engage. Like somebody you can't control and you are going to not try to fix them and just focus on yourself um, and hope that maybe your boss will be within earshot at some point. Uh, which then you have a natural way to raise the conversation. I mean, I wouldn't be dramatic about this and schedule a meeting with your boss to say I'm having an issue with Becky. I think if you're having an annual review and there's a chance for you to ask some questions or talk about how things are going, you might ask for advice. You know, I've I've been having um, I've been wondering what you think the best way of working with Becky is because I've noticed that um, she can get really upset with me and other 
administrative, you know, or our support staff? Is there a way for for working with her that other people have found effective? Because I've seen her make people cry a lot. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the most helpful thing is talking to your own boss uh, because the, the letter writer mentions that their direct boss is the CEO mm-hmm. and that they have a really good personal relationship. I think that's going to be a lot better than HR, mm-hmm. um, especially if Becky is an executive. I think HR's ability to help you is going to be real limited. Um, and so I just don't think that that's going to be a very productive route. Uh, route. I also think... Uh, while that might be helpful with a colleague, saying to Becky, uh, you seem like you're having a hard time controlling your emotions right now, <laughs> is at bare minimum going to result in just a one heck of a yelling, um, possibly in, in some more retaliation. Although I do love the idea I of mean... just calmly saying to a, an executive having a meltdown, like, you seem very agitated. Would you like me to give you a minute while you compose yourself? I, I mean, just flip the tables. I, you know, if you, yeah, probably not for a boss level, but it works incredibly well. So maybe file it away for the next irrational, angry peer yeah. or customer. <laughs> yeah. So I would say the one thing about this particular incident um, is, uh, although I could not agree more that Becky sounds really awful, Um It is not unusual for an assistant um, to be asked to send an email on behalf of an executive, even Mm -hmm. if they're not somebody you directly report to. So, again, none of this justifies any of her behavior. But in this particular instance, if an executive comes into your office and asks you to send them an email to to say, why don't you just send it yourself? Um, That may be something where if you took that story to your boss, your boss would say, actually, if an executive asks your help on setting something up, um, that is part of your job, uh, yes. even if you don't report to them. Um, only if it were becoming so overwhelming that you could not do the stuff you do for me would I want you to say no to that. Yes, I think, and we shouldn't underestimate the reality that at American workplaces, we are all expected to suffer some degree of indignities. Like, that is, there, there is a hierarchy and you essentially have to negotiate your way through what aspects of the workplace you want to fight the good fight mm-hmm. and and when you just accept that there are certain sort of unfair things people who are talented are allowed to be jerks yeah you know or sometimes as an assistant you might have things part of your job description that don't fit in exactly with what you were hired to do but it's not as long as it doesn't like as long as someone's not calling you at two in the morning they like get driven to acupuncture or something yeah. um, <laughs> that your boss might so so i would say first of all get clarity from your boss of like hey sometimes other executives will ask me to send emails on their behalf um if i have time to get to it and it doesn't interfere with my direct work responsibilities with you um do you want me to do that do you, you know do you want me to just be totally dedicated like get clarity on whether or not your boss is like oh yeah absolutely i want you to be available for that sometimes or wow no i'm so glad you told me i don't want you doing that you're my assistant mm. you work with me um and then, yeah, I, I think in addition, talk to your talk to your boss. And and I like the way that you framed it of like um, oftentimes it's not just the work that Becky asks us to do. It's the fact that she will take up big chunks of the day yelling, um, often escalating small mistakes into big reply all messes. Um, it's a lot. And I need a little help dealing with it. Um, do you have any suggestions? Mm-hmm. Um, and if your boss is like, wow, no, I had no idea. That's too bad. That tells you something about the culture of that workplace. Um, and if your boss says, oh, wow, I didn't know she's never like that with us, please copy me on those emails. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's kind of like the one power move of the assistant that you can do if you have a reasonable boss who maybe has not seen this from Becky. Yes. To when she does start to go bananas and escalate to say, 
I'm copying my boss here to see if there's something that I can do to help. Like, just like, (laughs) just flagging this for like, you know, Tim's attention. Um, And uh, again, check in with your boss first. You don't want to be like wasting your boss's time constantly. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. if your boss doesn't see any of this, um, when it gets really intense, um, you know, draw him in or her in and say like, and, and, and stay really calm and say like, so here's what it is. Here's the issue. Here's what I can do for you. Does that answer the question? And, you know, be nice. Do the whole butter wouldn't melt in my mouth thing. Stay real calm when she flips out um, and copy your boss. I like that. I, yeah, you, the email actually does give the letter writer an opportunity to, uh, you know, you don't have to pull out like a sneaky tape recorder and record the act of berating. Mm-hmm. If there is an email thread, which is really representative of it, I really think that is actually a great opportunity to frame it as you're you know you're looking to your boss for guidance it's not you're not like tattling on somebody right. you're not asking for a hostile work environment investigation to be opened you're saying um you know i would love some professional guidance on how to deal with this kind of a situation what would be a good way for me to reply should i not reply to this should what would what would you write mm-hmm. um and you know, it's just framing it as the kind of ongoing professional guidance and mentorship that bosses provide. Um, and, you know, strategically, I do think it's good to bring it up in the context, hopefully, of some ongoing regular check-ins or meetings that you have so that you don't, um, I think, you know, the sort of more neutral you can be, less dramatic, I need an urgent meeting with you, or this just came in, you know, can you jump in and manage it for me? Yeah. But, you know, keep it... Keep it low-key and uh, and just ask for guidance. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, if you have a good relationship with your direct boss and that boss is the CEO, um, if you can make a case calmly, rationally, especially when contrasted with Becky's, yes. you know, constant fits, um, that this person is making it really difficult for you to do your job. And if your boss values you. Hopefully, sooner rather than later, there will come a day when your boss, the CEO, with potentially the the power to determine who is an executive at this company and who isn't, will start asking him or herself, do I want my assistant to be so constantly besieged with unreasonable requests Mm -hmm. and fits uh, Mm -hmm. that Becky's continued employment here feels worth it to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is one sort of soft form of power that you may have, which is this direct line. And you can always frame this to your bosses. Look, my goal is to make your job easier. Right. Like, and this is a little like manipulative. But, you know, I mean, you only have so many uh, ways of fighting back with an executive. And I think this is going to be your your best strategy, which is just like, I just want to do a fabulous job for you, the CEO. Yeah. Yes. And sometimes, you know, I'll have to spend, you know, an hour out of my afternoon getting yelled at by Becky um, because some other unrelated person did not, you know, do this really unreasonable task for her. Um I just want to do a great job for you, <laughs> a wonderful CEO. That's brilliant. Because then the CEO is like, oh, Becky is fucking with my territory, yes. with my team. Yes. I don't want that. Yes, yes. And just from a self-care perspective, the sort of last thing I would add is, you know, really do not take it home with you. I had a workplace stress experience in 2008 where I had a colleague who was really upsetting me. And I remember doing yoga at one point to try to, like, basically prevent myself from giving myself a total heart attack over the stress. And to this day, 10 years later, when I do the same yoga pose, I 
am occasionally flooded with the same cortisol and stress hormones. How am I going to deal with this person? So don't do yoga, apparently, is <laughs> what it sounds like. Well, you can bake it. You can bake the stress into your body. I only worked with this person for one year. That's and so awful. 10 years later, my brain is confused by the position my body's in. It's like a mind-body connection. It's like, Jane, you have to figure out how are you going to handle this? And it's the body remembers the stress that we carry. And, you know, this person, you are probably not going to work with this person your whole life. God, so just try tr- try to be good to yourself and do not take it home and do whatever you do. Do not take it personally. Mm-hmm. It's not about you. Yeah. Um, and and try to avoid this becoming something that you you basically absorb into your body the stress of somebody else's inability to handle their stress and it is and awful and it's especially awful when somebody makes nice with people their level or higher and is an absolute jerk to everybody yeah. who works underneath them yeah um that is a terrible terrible way to be a, an executive yeah. um and i hope that she you know really changes her whole life um <laughs> and i'm sorry that you have to like come up with various schemes and subterfuges to deal with her um capitalism is bad which is usually just the the end answer to any workplace question is i'm sure sorry (laughs) that we live in the society that we do wait yeah uh hashtag universal basic income that would certainly help um it would not help though this next question (laughs) which is really something else um the subject line is simply dead to her this one's wild we get some Intense family questions and this specific strategy. I want to talk to the mom and I want to go talk to this mom yeah. myself. I tell her something. I get that. I really <laughs> do. So, dear Prudence, my mother is great most of the time. My siblings and I love her dearly. But now that we've started to have kids of our own, it's occurred to me that some of her little ways are more harmful than funny. Like, if we disappoint her, she'll pretend we're dead. Not to the point where it seems delusional. She's never booked a funeral. But she won't speak to us, and she'll refer to us in the past tense. Oh, Anne-Marie, she was a good daughter. Such a shame that she's gone now. It's always been a family joke, something to roll our eyes over. If we had big problems or really needed her, she'd always come around. I stayed, quote, dead the longest when I had an issue with drugs. I don't take that lightly, but it's hard to write about. And she told everyone that I was dead for a year until I got clean. However, I saw her do it to my nephew the other week. She just acted like he wasn't there and loudly said, It's so sad. My nice little boy is gone forever. It didn't seem so funny anymore. And when I think about how devastated that used to make me feel as a kid, maybe it never was. And to be honest, that year when I was using, it felt desperately hollow when I talked to my family. Her support wouldn't necessarily have helped me stop sooner, but it might have helped me in some way. I know that I have to say something, but it's been such a casually accepted thing for so long, I don't know how to broach it or what to suggest instead. I mean, mom's been doing this, not just to family, although her friends tend to stay dead, for years. How can I suddenly say I've got a problem with it and expect her to just stop? I'm so sorry. Mm. It, this is not funny at all. It is cruel. It is manipulative. It is a way of of exerting power over other people. And, uh, and you can. You can after all these years say, it broke my heart every time you said this to me. Mm-hmm. I wish I had said something sooner, but I've lived my whole life with it, and it just started to seem normal. But now that I see you doing this with other children, I can't be silent. I just want you to know it broke my heart yeah. every time. And and I would like you 
to stop. Yeah. I think especially that line that you say, letter writer, if we had problems or needed her, she'd always come around. But then the next sentence you say is like, I had a problem with drugs mm-hmm. and she told everyone mm-hmm. I was dead for a year. I mean, um, I don't, I, I get that it's kind of hard to really like open yourself up to the reality of how bad this is, but I don't know that your mom does always come around. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just bad. I don't think you have to make excuses for mm-hmm. it or say she's mostly a great mom. Um, this is really bad and it's really okay for you to tell her that she needs to stop. Especially with the kids. It's, it is, I mean, we can say it's emotionally abusive. Heck yeah. Yes. Yeah. It is. I, I, I cannot imagine, you know, a little kid hearing, I was a nice little boy and now I'm gone forever from my grandmother. Like, kids don't, Mm-mm. that is not an okay thing to say to a child that's dehumanizing. Yes. It, it tells them that not just their, like, love and acceptance in the family, but their very existence as a person is conditional. Yes. I mean, th- and th- this sort of behavior can can traumatize children for the whole lives where they believe that that love or support is extremely conditional and that they are not secure in their attachment to their family members. Um, and although she may be that child's grandmother, if she does it to her own children, it may make that child question whether his parents would do it yeah. to him. It is incredibly destabilizing and... Um, this is a this is a case where I think um, you advocate for yourself and for others. I mean, I would I don't I was think I was trying to think what would I say to a child in this situation, you know, to to offer support and say because I also think you don't you don't just talk to her if you hear this happening to another family member, grown or not, that that you should say that it's not okay in the moment if you can following up after, um, but be a voice of reason. Because when this sort of thing happens to you, you lose your inner radar to to know what is okay and what is normal and to hear from somebody else. That was not kind. And that's not, that's not how the rest of us feel. We wouldn't, we would, we would, you know, we would never treat you that way. And you can count on us um, to kind of try to restabilize yeah. Yeah. Definitely talk to your nephew. Check in with him. Check in with his parents. And I think if if it feels like you and your siblings have already been talking about this, maybe ask for your sibling's support in talking to your mom. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't maybe some of them will feel afraid to say something to her if, if they don't want to join you. I still think it's worth saying, but it may feel helpful to check in with them first and say, like, do you also feel terrible about this? Is this also really painful to you? Um, and again, like, don't don't speak on their behalf if they're not comfortable mm-hmm. with it, but they may be willing to like say, oh man, well, if everyone feels this way, let's let's have that conversation. Mm-hmm. And in terms of like, am I allowed to not like this when I didn't say anything before? Yes. You are as an adult, especially just now that you're seeing her do this to kids again, mm-hmm. realizing how abusive that was um, and how cruel it was and how much it hurt you. Um, and so you don't need to apologize like it's my fault for not saying this earlier. You, you know, you can just say for a long time, I thought it was normal. Now that I realize it's not and I've been able to acknowledge how badly it's hurt me, I want you to know that. And now that I've seen you do it to another generation of kids, you need to stop. Yes. And that's going to probably be a really scary conversation to have, Mm -hmm. um, especially because you know your mom is willing to cut you off. Um, And that may very well be her response. If you say this to her, she may very well say, you're dead to me now. Oh, yes. And there may be a way to approach it where if you can try to make the goal or the the outcome you're seeking as concrete and small 
as possible in the sense of, you know, you're, you're not necessarily going to get an apology. Parents don't always have the capacity to reflect and repent on things that they've done in the past. Um, so, you know, you can even let her know, I don't want to, you know, litigate our whole childhood. The only thing I actually really care about at this point going forward is that we protect children from having to hear this or that this just let's just stop from here on out. We don't have to talk about it having happened in the past. You don't even you don't even have to apologize. What I want is for it to stop. Make it maybe you do want an apology. I mean, I would. But but if you because I mean, frankly, she's probably not going to react well if she feels threatened or um, she may be very hyper reactive to perceived criticism and then lashes out. Um, If you can if you can really clearly say, I just I just want this to not happen going forward. That would make me really happy. You might avoid I, and I like the idea of, like, going in with a clear sense of what your goals are. And I think your goal should be um, not to get something out of your mom, yeah. but should be to say what you need to say and to not apologize for it and mm-hmm. to not walk it back. And mm-hmm. to, if it seems like the conversation is not going anywhere productive, end it on your own terms. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be wonderful if your mom could hear this and immediately have, like, a road to Damascus moment mm-hmm. of contrition. <laughs> if she doesn't, it would be great if it planted a seed such that later yeah. she could acknowledge that upon reflection, she's realized that you were right. Um, even if none of those things happen, I think it will feel really good to you to mm-hmm. have said this. Mm-hmm. So I think to go in thinking, what I want to communicate is, it hurt me as a child. It hurts me as an adult. Um, it's not okay. And she needs to stop doing it. And um, whatever her response, however rational or irrational, however capable or incapable she seems to be of listening to you, um, your job is not to convince her um, and if she says, well, I didn't mean it that way, um, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. You're not trying to tell her what she did or didn't intend. You're telling her what you felt as a child and what you feel now. Um, and that's not something she can argue you out of. So if it seems like the conversation's not going anywhere, you can just end it by saying, I'm not going to argue with you about this. I'm telling you that as a child, this was devastating to me. I'm telling you this as an adult, when I was addicted to drugs and trying to get help, it was devastating to me. Mm-hmm. And when I saw you do it to my nephew last week, my heart broke again. It hurts me every time you do it, and you need to stop. And if you don't stop, then I'm going to walk away. Um, And that's going to feel really hard. Um, I'm sure she will say something like, then you're just doing the exact same thing. Um, So kind of prepare yourself for that potential um, rebuttal. Um, But just to say, Mom, by asking for a baseline level of respect and acknowledgement of my personhood, that's just the minimum of what I need for anyone to be in a relationship with me. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to do the same thing to you. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you for me to be in a relationship with you, you need to treat me like a person, even if you're mad at me. Yes. And, you know, as I hear you say all of these things, I think, you know, you can't ask, you can't control what she does, but you can let her know what's going to happen. And you may not want to say something as extreme as, I'm going to walk away. But you might just want to inform her, I'm not going to humor you on yeah, this anymore. I'm going to challenge you when you say it. And and my siblings are not going to humor you. or wh- Basically, as many... And go to the siblings. Go to, go to the rest of the family and say, I would like to stop humoring her on this. Yeah. Can we all agree that this is not funny and let's not give it a pass yeah. and not call it a joke? I think that's great. 
Yeah. And and even if they're like, oh, I'd love to, but I'm too scared. That's fine. But just for you to say, I'm going to I'm going to. Yeah. I'm not going to let that one go unchallenged. Yeah. Especially if you do it to a kid. Yes. Um, if she says that to a kid to just say directly to the child in that moment, hey, we love you. You are a great kid. That's not an OK thing for an adult to say to anybody. And I'm so sorry. That's perfect. That, in fact, I hope the letter writer just kind of jots that down and you can use that script. That is a perfect thing yeah. to say. And I'm just really sorry. That's a really awful thing for a parent to say to a child. It is. It's um, and it's having lived through it, that you can have compassion for someone else going through it is um, wonderful that you... Yeah, that you're looking out for the next generation, that you're not just saying like, well, I had to do it, so they should have to do it too. Good on you. All right, last letter. I think the subject of this email is also kind of a clue. So the subject is decency. Dear Prudence, to our horror, our adult daughter has had an affair with our long-term neighbor and friend. He is married with teenage children. My daughter used to babysit them. It is like there's a stranger in my daughter's place. She is proud of her actions and flaunts her relationship whenever she can. She openly kisses him on the street in front of his wife and children. She complains about people being judgmental and unreasonable and yells at us if her father and I express any discomfort over her actions. Her sisters are no longer speaking to her. My oldest broke her engagement when her fiancé had an affair with a friend and thinks her sister is, quote, disgusting. My youngest asked our neighbor exactly when he decided the girl he watched grow up was fuckable. The fight almost got physical. My daughter lives with us and only has a part-time job. It sickens me to let for this affair to continue under our roof. But I'm terrified if we push too hard, our daughter will dissipate into thin air. We are being shunned and gossiped about at our church and in our community. What can we do? My first question here is how adult is she? Yes. Because so much rides on that. Um, you say that, again, sometimes people have kids with like big, big age gaps, but it sounds like your youngest child is living at home like as a minor um, and your daughter used to babysit the kids. The kids are only teenagers now. So it sounds like maybe it was not that long ago that she was babysitting. Like, is she 19? Because it's one thing if your daughter is 30. Yeah. And this is happening. But it it sounds like she's a very young adult and she has grown up next door to this man um, and that he has quite possibly groomed her. Yes. That was my first instinct is that your daughter may have been exploited or taken advantage of and is actually a victim in the situation. It's very different if she's, you know, in her Mid to late 20s versus, you no know, 18, 19, 18, even, yeah. even, you know, 21, 22, 23. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know if we want to give kind of two alternative. You know what? I, I think we have enough here that I'm just going to kind of lean into the, the side of like, he's been a long term neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, she's babysat his kids. Definitely within the last five or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lived next door to you for a very long time. Um He's known her since she was a child. You know, your youngest asked your neighbor, um, when yeah. did you decide to start having sex with a girl you watched grow up? Yeah. The dynamics here are such that 
I, I just don't believe that um, this is simply an issue of two adults in similar yeah. stages in life falling in making love. a bad decision. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, and especially the line, has had an affair. How long has this been going on? Yeah. Like, how old was she when this started? Mm-hmm. Was she babysitting? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, I, I, I just don't think you have a case to be made right now that this is like a, a situation where she is morally culpable in the way that he is. I think the issue yes. here is that your neighbor has taken advantage um, of your daughter's youth and relative inexperience. Um, and I, I, I don't have like a fabulous answer for like, if she is of legal age now, there may be limits on, on how much, um, uh, like scope you have over the choices that she makes. But I think the thing that you need to bear in mind here is that um, he he is the person who has been abusing his position as mm-hmm. an adult in her life as she was growing up. Yes. I think they have, they, I think, know in their hearts, the parents here, that they need to hold their daughter close in this situation. And I think you know, your relationship with her is almost certainly going to last longer than she may feel she is in a consenting relationship. And and she may, you know, she, even if even if she is a little bit older than we're guessing, and it's still shocking and still feels morally wrong to be having an affair with somebody who's married— even so, even if she is older and more consenting, your relationship with her is g- almost certainly going to survive her mm-hmm. relationship with this man. And so, you know, my my guidance would be for you to just reflect on how you want to be there for her. Even if, even if family members are disappointed, they think she's made a poor judgment, um, how can you support her? How can you... Um, talk to her, ask her questions about this, be curious about it, you know, ask more questions than judgment is expressed, certainly until you get a better picture of how long this has been going on. Does it seem like she was groomed? Especially that that line about it feels like there's a stranger in my daughter's place. Yeah. Especially just given the what seems to be the timeline of all this. I I just got to say, I don't think this happened the day she turned 18. Mm -hmm. Um. I, I feel like part of the reason she seems like a stranger is because he has had some really, really inappropriate, probably, possibly illegal um, ways of getting in her head at a very formative age and mm-hmm. convincing her that, like, this is the greatest love story of all time. Mm-hmm. Ours is a forbidden love. Mm-hmm. It's you and me against the world, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife doesn't understand me. Yes. You get along so great with the kids. I, I, I realize that I am filling in some of the lines here, but I just. I noticed that there's a lot of like what you're saying to your daughter and there doesn't seem to be anything you've been saying to him. And I get that he's not your kid. You don't have the same scope or or the same like. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Whatever. It's gone. I don't remember the word. But like he is (laughs) the married adult in this situation. He is the person that you need to be directing a lot of this at. I really appreciated the brother who almost got in a fight with him. I have to say, he was he was like the hero. I, I mean, I don't know that it's like a hero in the sense that like, you know... It, uh, it seemed appropriate. At, at least somebody was directing their attention yes. at the adult married man yes. who is the one breaking his wedding vows yes. and kissing yes. his very young 
lover, former babysitter in the street in front of his children. Yes. Like he's the one who fathered those children. Yes. He's the one doing these yes. things. Yes. Um, again, that does not mean that you have to be like thrilled about the choices she's making right now. But he is culpable and 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 is the the damn adult here. Yes. Like you call her your adult daughter. He's an adult. Yes. Let's let's talk to him. So I would say, number one, we're being shunned and gossiped about in your church and your community. Step, you know, step one, your church sucks. <laughs> if your church's response to a married dude oh. um, sleeping with uh, a former babysitter is to shun the parents of the girl, your I church know. sucks ass. I was trying to think of a more tactful way to say that. No, your church sucks ass. And I'm sorry because I, I imagine that you would want to feel like you could turn to your spiritual community yes. for help and love and 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 support in this moment. Um, and anybody who is shunning you or gossiping about you, they fucking suck. They don't have your best interests at heart. They do not mm-hmm. actively will your good. Yeah. They are not interested in helping you through a painful and difficult time. Yes. Um, they want to point fingers and they want to judge mm-hmm. and they want to distance themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so sorry. But right now you are finding out who truly cares about you and do not waste your time and energy on a bunch of religious hypocrites mm-hmm. um, who are judging the family of a very recently teenage girl. Yes. Um, yes. And then, you know. Bring her closer as much as you can. You know, it, she's she has siblings who are not speaking to her anymore. She may be getting shunned by some of her peers. You can be, you can be a loving presence who she can maybe start to process some yeah. of this with. Yeah. And in the end, I think you will look back and be proud of that and will never regret continuing to love her through it and to to just ask questions mm-hmm. and let her know she is not going to be shamed or shunned yeah. by her parents yep. about this. And that doesn't mean you have to say, I'm thrilled about this. This makes me happier. This is what I wanted right. for you. Um, but And you can also set limits. Like if she starts yelling at you, you, you know, you can absolutely, even though she's an adult, you can still say, I'm not going to have this conversation when we're shouting. Um, Let's take a break and let's come back and talk again. And I want you to know I am not trying to dominate you. And really, by the way, follow through on that one. Like, I I am not going. I I know I cannot control what you do. I am concerned. Um, I'm worried. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I fear that there are ways in which he has taken advantage of you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also want to listen. And I want you to know that you have my unconditional love and support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to you to know that if I ask you questions or if I don't approve of or agree with something, that does not mean that I think you are a bad person or unworthy of love. Exactly. Like, can we, with that foundation in place, can we talk? And it might help to have some of these conversations outside of the house. Um, it might mm-hmm. help to go on a long drive mm-hmm. um, or take a walk, mm-hmm. um, go to a nearby park. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes like the site of the home can feel really tense. Um, and it's also really okay for you to say things like, I don't want him coming over here. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a fair limit to set. Mm -hmm. Um, I think really focus some of these questions on your neighbor, um, and really investigate some timeline stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. it is possible that he has, uh, you know, done something illegal. And then at that point, you may need to ask yourself the questions of what would it mean to press charges, Mm -hmm. um, 
would I be willing to do that if my daughter did not want me to? Uh, I think it might be helpful to seek the advice of a counselor at that point. Like these are some big thorny questions and I don't have a great answer for you. I I would not recommend filing charges against your daughter's wishes, despite what I can only imagine would be the sort of like deep pain of if you were to discover that he had been Mm -hmm. grooming and molesting her when she was a minor babysitting his children. But yeah, the way to look at this is not um, my daughter is a adult with a totally independent life mm-hmm. who's made a decision I really disapprove of. Mm-hmm. But a man who's known my daughter since she was a little girl, who had her babysit his children fairly recently. You know, if they're teenagers, if one of them's 13, they could have been getting babysat three years ago. You know? Yes. I mean, it's... and. And I don't want the letter writer to negate any of this advice in case we are off by a few years or a few dates, because the reality is what you said is so spot on to say, I'm worried about you, so mm-hmm. I want to know more. Right. I just want to know. Just tell me more. Yeah. Get as much information you can. Let her express her feelings. Wh- what, you know, what is she What is she like about this relationship? Where does, you know, does she, is this a relationship she actually wants to invest in. I mean, mm-hmm. let her just talk and get as much information as you can. And if it is a really serious, harmful, traumatizing, illegal thing that has happened here, that will come out. Right. And if it wasn't, it's still it's still shocking that he cheated on his wife with a former babysitter. Yeah. Yeah. It's still it's still bad and she still needs she will need help processing this for years. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. And it, yeah, as you say, it, it's certainly possible that this was never illegal, that all he did was really fucked up stuff that stayed on the right side of the law, which would not make what he did anything less than an abuse of power still. Yeah, she may feel guilty. She may come around in a couple years and the relationship's over and feels really guilty about it, internalizes all of the shame from the community. And she will need you then mm-hmm. as well to um, and so showing up now and and being an alternative to the shame and right. the shunning, it will help. Especially because if right now everyone else in her life is like, yeah. you are a bad person, yeah. you are a bad, you know, fallen woman, yeah. um, and he's the only person offering right. her any love, support, affection, right. that is going to drive her further into yeah. a pretty twisted relationship. Yes. So to anyone, you know, you know, when it comes to the idea of letting an affair continue under your roof. You can certainly set limits about whether or not he comes over to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you can certainly make it clear that, uh, you know, your concern is for his kids, for the fact that he did not begin this relationship in honor or in openness, um, that he kept it a secret, that he cheated on his wife, um, that he is um, doing it in front of his children in a way that hurts them. Um, those are all things that you can point out gently and say, um, this gives me deep concern. This worries me. This does not seem like admirable behavior on his part. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say all those things. Just because she lives with you does not mean that you think everything she does is great. Um, you know, if it were continuing under a different roof, I don't know that you would feel that great so much as you would feel like, well, at least no one's going to shun me anymore. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I, I think see that counselor, ask those questions, set limits in terms of how you guys speak to each other. Um you know, you can certainly make it clear what you do and don't think is right. And you can also ask questions and save a lot of this judgment for him. Yes. Save all of it for him. Yes. I don't think you would call her your adult daughter in the first line if the adult part wasn't in question. Perfect. Yes. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And I'm just really sorry. I'm really sorry that your neighbor and your friend um, did this. He sounds like a horrible person. And if nothing else, I hope... He's not around any of your other kids. Um, 
and that you do not feel under any obligation to um, justify any of his behavior or to put her in the bad, you know, the bad seat and him in the fine seat. Like, oh, well, he was tempted and strayed. And find a better church. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Jane, we did it. We did something. We at least talked about all the letters. We talked about the letters, and I feel so much compassion for and awareness that every day people are dealing with really difficult things, and we should be grateful if we wake up and have a day where we are not and use the fact that we are not to to help others who are because this is—I'm— I mean, we need to be conscious. Of this other is some people. heavy stuff. Yeah, people are dealing with this stuff. People are walking around with a lot um, on a regular basis. So, yes, um, I'm so so glad that you were able to be so helpful on this show um, and remind us once again that um, stretching can be really dangerous. If the last time you stretched was ten years ago when you were going through a really difficult time, <laughs> thank you, Daniel. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, just as a note to all of my listeners. Um, Jason Statham's really attractive in the new movie about a giant shark called The Meg. Mm -hmm. And I just want you all to think about that. He wears a lot of big sweaters. That's all. I I just want everyone to know that there's a movie about a very big shark where a very handsome man wears a lot of sweaters. Well, the entire cast of Crazy Rich Asians is also very attractive. And there's some great sweaters in that movie as well. Those are the two movies I saw last week. supremely good a lot of really good sweater action going on Mm -hmm. it was it was a good week for movies (laughs) um i will almost certainly see the meg again i read the book so the book that it's based on it's based on a book how can it be based on a book it looks so ridiculous not only has some books are ridiculous not only was it based on a book the book came out in 1997 and got optioned for a movie almost immediately and has been stuck in development hell for the last 21 years exactly what i want to hear before going to see a movie i have been like since at least 2008 been aware of it and have been like every couple of years i have like a google alert for the meg Oh my gosh. Um, and I've been like, when is the movie going to come out? And they kept changing the cast or changing who it was attached to. And I just was, I, I really wanted my movie about the giant shark. And it finally happened. And it lived up to your hopes and dreams. Not especially, no. It was, oh. not, a, it was not a great film. But I got what I wanted out of it, which was a giant shark, the word, the Meg, um, and Jason Statham running around in big cozy sweaters. Why would he be in a sweater if they're like in the ocean? This makes no sense. Well, not like when they were swimming, obviously, but during, like when they're on the big expensive, uh, like science outpost, um, sometimes he'd have to put on a sweater because he'd been swimming and he'd get cold. Oh, yeah. He looks good. The man looks good in a sweater. I don't know what to tell you. I was thinking Speedo would be more of the fashion. He is also sometimes shirtless, which I also enjoyed. Okay. um, Very, very much. He's a good looking man. He rocks a great sweater. And you're hoping that he hears this and sends you a spoon or a bowl. You know. A Meg bowl. I don't know that I need anything from Jason Statham <laughs> in terms of a personal interaction. Just put it out there. Put it out uh, there. I, I I feel like mostly <laughs> I just want to watch him wear sweaters in movies. But, oh, gosh. Um, you're going to get a sweater in the mail signed by him, You I You feel. seem to have like a very optimistic viewpoint about what Jason Statham does when he hears that people find him attractive. I don't think he's out here mailing he may gifts appreciate to strangers. Also, he may appreciate the work that you do as well. I really Stay don't tuned. think that he does, but Stay I appreciate tuned. the energy that you bring to this conversation. <laughs> All right. I feel like at this point we're done helping the people and now we're just getting involved in my personal issues. So on that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. Have a fabulous rest of the day. Thank you for the spoon. Ah, you're welcome. 
Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.